In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In our studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. It's it's always funny to notice how things can change. I remember on Monday's show, if you've listened to that one, my voice was really um, off. I had some pretty bad allergies for several days in a row, and my breathing was more restricted. My voice sounded different and nasally. Um, I don't feel like it's totally back, actually, but pretty much back to what it usually is. Um, this is as good as it gets. But uh, yeah, just interesting to hear hear that because I can hear myself in the headphones. Glad to be a little bit more back to normal, but um, it's a reminder of how things might not feel so good, but we can be fortunate to remember that even when they don't feel good, oftentimes they, they will get better. Things will improve. Um, to start the show today, after that little part there, I did want to talk about, um, you know, lately the focus, understandably, uh, and it might turn to that again, has been the situation in Iran. But I also um, know that uh, there's so much I can say on that. Of course, I'm not someone who can update you on all of the news of what's going on. It's continuously heartbreaking, and I've shared some thoughts on what it's like to um, psychologically deal with what we're going through with that as people outside, not comparable to what the people inside of Iran are dealing with. Um, and I will continue to do that and continue to have guests on my show to talk about what's going on in Iran. But I did want to also, of course, discuss other topics as well um, on my program. And so the the topic of perfectionism had uh, come up a few times recently um, and how hurtful that can be or how harmful it is. And of course, we we know that it is. But sometimes we can even underestimate how harmful it can be. Because many psychological terms, as a psychologist, I see this happen all the time where people will use a term colloquially or just in a casual sense. Oh, I'm so OCD or, oh, that's, you know, she's so bipolar or, um, you know, oh, I'm such a perfectionist. Things like that where uh, usually what we mean is something like, you know, for example, oh, they're so bipolar they had a good mood and then a bad mood, but doesn't mean bipolar disorder, which is a much more extensive thing and affects people much more deeply. Or when people say they're so OCD, they generally don't actually mean obsessive compulsive disorder. They might just mean they're very clean or neat or about a specific thing. They can be very particular about things being a certain way. Actually, what we often see is people even confuse OCD obsessive compulsive disorder with OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And OCPD is where you would be very preoccupied with order. Things have to be a certain way, certain rules, and being very inflexible. Whereas OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, involves having these intrusive, obsessive thoughts that are very harmful to the individual, very distressing. And then they may turn to these compulsive, repetitive types of behaviors to 
help uh, deal with those obsessive thoughts. So when someone says they're OCD because they keep things clean, that's very different from someone who's genuinely suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, which is much different from that. Uh, and the same thing can apply to something like perfectionism. So people say, oh, I'm such a perfectionist. And uh, another thing that I could add here is that when we say we're bipolar, I'm OCD, I'm these things, yes, it can be inaccurate and might undermine and minimize the suffering of people actually dealing with something like that. But it also is another indicator of how all of us are dealing with things to a different degree. So we all experience some level of mood changes and fluctuations that we can go up and down and to different degrees for different people and for some maybe very severe. And even with keeping things clean or neat, we all have tendencies and we all can be peculiar about some things like, oh, you know what? Yeah, for some reason, I always like to have the volume on an even number on the TV or I like to set my alarm this way or do certain things. That doesn't mean you have OCD or even OCPD, but we all have aspects of this because any mental illness we're talking about tends to be some exaggeration or extreme of some human tendency or norm that we might all face. And so the same will tr be true of perfectionism because uh, on the face of it, no one likes making mistakes or no one enjoys being wrong. We would rather be right. So we all have some degree of perfectionism in the sense that we all will care about getting it right or not wanting to get it wrong. But when we really look at perfectionism, when it's more pathological, when it's more serious and hurtful and harmful, it is quite harmful to the individual, even potentially dangerous, which I'll get to when we're talking about it in the more significant, severe type of a way. So uh, we might all feel that at some ways, like, oh, I, I hated that I made a mistake. I'm such a perfectionist or I'm my own worst critic. And often we also like to say this because we want to show the high standards we have for ourselves. For example, we see a basketball player and they miss a free throw and they might show a really strong reaction. Now they might be frustrated, but sometimes when I'm watching, I get the sense that the feeling is to show I'm so good and I'm so used to making them, I'm exaggerating in a sense how much I expect to make it, that that's such a surprise and I'm so disappointed if I don't make it. But we all will, will care about getting it right and, and not making a mistake. The reason why I said perfectionism can actually be dangerous is that I remember the first time I came across this was now several years ago, um, but that there was uh, an article or I don't know if it was on, uh, I forgot where I saw it, but an article by a therapist or a psychologist saying that perfectionism is actually a silent risk factor for suicide. So when we think of suicide of course, lots of things can lead to suicide, but we tend to think of depression very commonly in a more general sense, of course, bipolar disorder as well. And we tend to think of things like hopelessness. That's a very big indicator or concern or warning sign that someone might be suicidal when we hear them express very strong degrees of hopelessness. Because if you feel like things are really bad, obviously that's not good, but if you feel like they're really bad and they'll never get better, this can be more of a risk factor for being suicidal. So we, even as therapists, that's something we ask about or we explore is hope and hopelessness. And is there any way to instill some hope or hold on to some hope and give it to the client so that they may be, will 
pursue or go on because we all need that. If you have no hope, you can feel that it's not worth continuing because you don't think things can get better. And if the suffering becomes very severe, it could feel unbearable to think it's so bad and it's never going to get better, then what's the point? Unfortunately, that is the line of thinking that can uh, get someone to that type of a place where taking their life might seem like in that type of mindset to make sense. Unfortunately, we make our thoughts and our decisions with the same mind that's feeling different things and affected by things. Actually, this is relevant to the book I talked about on, on Monday show on being certain that we think we're making rational decisions or we can totally separate our feelings from how we think about something, but we can't. That brain, it's one brain. Now we can shift and think about things in different ways and be conscious, unconscious of something. We can try to calm down so we can make a different type of a decision. It's not to say every decision is equal in all ways, but we have this one brain and this one body that's experiencing whatever we're experiencing and it impacts it. So if you're feeling depressed and down and low, unfortunately, the things that come to your mind are low, even memories. You think about a friendship, you might think of the bad times more than the good times. You think about your life, you think of the bad times more than the, the good times. You think about yourself, you think of the lower and bad qualities rather than the good. You think about the future, you think it's going to be worse and more bleak and you're less hopeful about the future. So unfortunately, that brain in that moment is seeing the negative, and that's why when someone is depressed, they can go towards that place of feeling bad. Uh, Beck had his depressive triad about the self, um, the, the world, and the future. So you just feel really negative about everything, and unfortunately can lead someone that that's, that state of mind, it makes sense to them, unfortunately, to feel that bleak about their life. Now, perfectionism might seem di so different from that. And so there's several reasons why, as was explained, and I've heard others discuss this as well, that perfectionism can be a risk factor for suicide, is a few things. One is people who are perfectionistic tend to be high-performing. I was about to say high-functioning, but by high-performing, I mean you see them and they look like they're doing well, so they're usually fairly successful in academic or career type of pursuits or work and professional pursuits. Uh, they'll look put together, so to speak, because they'll likely care a lot about presentation and not looking bad in any type of way or any type of specific way. Um, so to the surface, they seem like they're doing fine. They're doing really well. And maybe here I should add when we're talking about perfectionism, as I was saying, we can use it in this more casual way that we might all say we don't want to make mistakes or I'm such a perfectionist, but really here we're saying, or I'm talking about when we have a very strong sense that if I get it wrong, if I make a mistake, it's tragic. It's not just, oh, I made a mistake, it doesn't feel good. It's I made a mistake, the sky is falling, or I'm unlovable, people won't like me or love me or it's I'm unacceptable if I make a mistake, if I don't get it right. So genuine perfectionism is very concerning as an experience or very distressful for the person experiencing it because every moment is not a moment to maybe do something good or feel good about it. It's just trying to avoid tragedy. So you take a test. Okay, I did well on this test, which can feel good for a moment, but really it's more about relief of, okay, I didn't mess up or show myself as bad or show even what might feel like 
my true colors because it's usually coming from a deep down a place of I'm not so worthy I'm not okay I have to keep proving or showing I'm deserving of love or acceptance at least for the time being so it feels like we're balancing on this very delicate type of a tightrope that just one push in the wrong direction and all of a sudden everything falls apart so the genuine perfectionism we're talking about here is not just a dislike of making mistakes because that is every human being is that we're talking about this very serious type of response to making mistakes which comes from the sense that I have to be good I have to be perfect I can't make mistakes or else I won't be lovable or accepted I'll be rejected or I should feel ashamed of myself for making those kinds of mistakes so we can see that when we are genuinely dealing with someone who has perfectionism it can be a very painful experience for them day to day they're going to be very anxious because they're on guard and looking for where they might make a mistake where it might be seen how it's going to be seen by others which gets to some of the issues related to even suicide that I was mentioning so it's a very stressful life for someone who's a perfectionist again it's more of a series of potential relief rather than good feelings and a feeling of success or genuine healthy pride and goodness about what they go through so as I was saying they tend to present quite well so people don't think they should be concerned compared to this caricature of someone who's very depressed and down who of course people mask that very well also but someone who might know them can see that more than someone who seems like they're doing well they just seem like they're stressed about work or school but they seem okay and so related to that someone who is a perfectionist because of their perfectionism doesn't want to show any weakness and this is a really big part of this puzzle that can be very concerning is that even if they're not okay or let's say if they're considering suicide or considering taking some kind of really serious negative action they likely won't tell anyone or show anyone because again there's this sense that I have to always be right and good and have it all put together and not make mistakes so it'd be so embarrassing to go tell someone I'm not doing well or to ask for help or it'd be so shameful to need someone to help me I should be able to figure it all out on my own I shouldn't need any help and I definitely shouldn't let anyone see that I'm not okay so unfortunately when someone who's a perfectionist is really not doing well they likely still won't tell anyone or seek help whether it's from a loved one or from a professional to go to therapy for that reason as a therapist and practicing for many years of course I've seen many people dealing with perfectionism so it's not that they never would but often it might be something else that might bring them in too a relationship issue or they think it's about something else they might not consider the perfectionism a problem they might not have that awareness because they might just think this is how they're supposed to be or it feels very genuine that I better not make a mistake so unfortunately they're not likely to ask for help seek help show any problems or issues and so it can feel like it's too shameful to address what they're dealing with and so with this uh, author was pointing out and others um, agree or at least can see that thinking and I'm sure you can see this thought pattern or this logic to it that they might go to something drastic because it just feels like it's impossible I can't uh, face you know sharing what I've been going through or that I'm struggling in some way so we're at a commercial break I, I hope I perfectly talked about perfectionism no but I hope I 
got some ideas out there that I'll continue after the break exploring how re- genuinely harmful this can be if you notice it in yourself or, or a loved one to be aware of that concern, not to, to freak you out about it or be alarmist about it, but to really recognize how painful and destructive it can be when we are dealing with genuine perfectionism. So I'll talk a bit more about that after the break. Let's go to the commercial and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about perfectionism and how when we're talking about a genuine perfectionism and someone has that as a, whether you want to call it a personality trait or characteristic, it can be very, very harmful to them. And so as I was saying, they might not strike you as someone you need to worry about because they'll generally be high performing and present themselves quite well. But that's part of the problem is that they feel a need to to be seen that way very uh, significantly. And if they don't, they can feel very, very worried about about exposing any type of weakness. And so if they are going through a difficult time, which itself could be caused by the perfectionism, they are likely not to ask for help or to um, show that to anyone because of that sense of perfectionism and, and need. And so they might go Again, the, what I was mentioning, some articles suggesting that we want to be concerned about this when it comes to suicide as a risk factor that we might not think of as commonly when we think of suicide. And I really did resonate with that. And I actually could relate to that because um, now I know I'm, I might be saying this, it could sound like what I was talking about in the last segment that people say, oh, I'm a perfectionist, I'm, or I'm OCD, I'm bipolar. But I don't know if I'd say I have the most severe form of perfectionism, but I definitely notice it in myself and have noticed it in my own life. And so without getting into too much detail of some stories of my my own adolescence, my own teenage years, I remember a period of time, which I might actually explore during a show in more detail, but where I was going through something academically that um, to give it in a short way that I hadn't gone to a course. And because of that, the professor had given me a bad grade when I thought I was going to get dropped from the course. Now that itself was probably related to perfectionism to some degree of feeling that I couldn't do well or the, the type of work that was asked of me. I think I was worried about this, is, I think more than 20 years ago, but I do have some memories of what was going on. But what I remember and what related to what I was talking about with perfectionism and not seeking help was that I was so ashamed of this bad grade that I didn't know what to do about it and I didn't want to tell anyone about it. So I was hiding that it was going on or avoiding it, even though I knew it was there. So it was on the back of my mind, but as much as possible, um, even to myself, especially the, the best way we can lie to others is to lie to ourselves. I was hiding it from myself and not thinking about it being real and it became a bigger problem. And so this is what can happen, what we find with people who are um, perfectionist. We can think, well, yeah, it's good to be so hard on yourself. You know, we hear this a lot. I'm so hard on myself. As I was saying before, my own people will say I'm my own worst critic and we'll be prideful of that or feel good about it. And so we'll think it's such a good thing or we think, well, don't be so easy on yourself. Don't be soft on yourself. You have to be hard on yourself. Now, as I think is almost always the case, it's not that either extreme 
is healthy, it's usually some balanced medium that we have to look for. So people might think, oh yeah, it's not good to be so hard on yourself, which I will talk about that, uh, you know, to be so strict. So I think, no, no, do the opposite. Let them do whatever they want. Never, you know, have any kind of rules or boundaries. Let's say um, you're trying to help someone be good at something. I've I've been watching a lot of World Cup games. So you you have a, a soccer team where you're trying to train a soccer player and you might think oh because i i don't want to be that strict and overly strict way let them they never have to do they don't feel like it don't do it and this is not healthy either so to go to that other extreme where there's no um, sense of uh, discipline or pushing or getting out of the comfort zone that doesn't lead to growth and the best outcome either so that's something we want to be careful about and that's what people get afraid of they're afraid that if i'm not so hard on myself, that means I'm being soft on myself. And no, it doesn't have to be that. You cannot punish yourself for making a mistake or punish yourself um, for not doing it exactly right. You don't have to do that, but it doesn't mean you say everything is uh, fine and a mistake is as good as uh, a correct answer or a good shot or whatever we're, we're talking about you're doing. So it's not good to be so lenient and think that that's going to be the solution. Absolutely not. But this thought or thinking that by pushing ourselves and being so hard on yourself, or if let's say you're helping someone in some way, that that's, that's the key. What we notice, and especially with ourselves, we can do it because we can hide from ourselves. What they see is that people who are so hard on themselves, they maybe will push themselves on some things in a good way. So obviously it's not all bad. But what they also will do is if something is going bad, they're likely to avoid it or ignore it. Because if you are so against making mistakes, if you're not good at something or if you're not doing well at something, you will likely avoid that thing altogether. This is not exactly the same. I'll come back to it, but it's similar to what we see people do. Let's say you're studying for an exam and there's two chapters on this exam. One of them you already know pretty well, like you're pretty good at uh, you know, the questions, the practice questions, and you know the material really well. The other one you don't know so good. It's much more shaky. You don't remember a lot of the things. You get some things mixed up or you haven't even studied it that much. So, of course, if you're studying for an exam, it's pretty obvious someone would say, well, uh, you know, really put some time into that chapter you don't know well because that's the one where you need more work. And this makes sense, but we find that people do, and especially if you have some of these feelings of um, perfectionism, you might actually do this depending on how it presents itself for you and what the, what kind of situation you're in, people are more likely at times to study the chapter they already know well because it feels so good to know the stuff, to get the questions right, the practice questions right, and to go face the questions they don't know makes them feel uncomfortable, even though this is especially uh, when you're studying, that's the time to make the mistakes and to get things wrong. But still, the feeling of getting it wrong can be so uncomfortable for someone who is a perfectionist. Again, no one likes it, but it can be so uncomfortable for them that they'll avoid looking at the thing they don't know because it brings up that discomfort, even though it's going to hurt them now and on the test they might do poorly, which itself will bring up its own things. But anyway, we see this happen a lot. I felt it myself before where you have this tendency to go to the thing you already know because it feels good, even though it's going to hurt you. But so what we see is that people who are very hard on themselves. Yes, they might really perform well on certain things, but when they're not good at something or if they have a problem, let's say uh, a drinking problem, drug problem, some kind of behavior they're doing that's hurtful or harmful, 
because it's so difficult for them to face it, they avoid it altogether and the problem might just become worse as it usually does when we avoid something. Another analogy that might help illustrate this point of when we might avoid things when they're, let's say, not good or we're making a mistake or need to have some work on it. Imagine you have uh, two kids or two kids who have two different parents. One of their parents is this very strict hard, will punish any wrongdoing, whether it's their fault or not, if they get annoyed by something, they're just going to be very, very hard on you. That's one parent. The other one is a more loving parent who, for just this analogy, we won't say is like super lenient, but will be much more accepting if you make a mistake, will at least want to hear what you said, might have a consequence, but it feels fair. And there isn't this intense fear of punishment, intense fear of what the consequence will be. So, the, the kid is playing by themselves and they break something, kind of the, the quintessential, the child breaks the vase. Now, if you have that more loving parent that might have rules, you know they might be upset, but you're not afraid of them, you're much more likely to tell that parent, oh, you know what, I broke the vase. And we'll see, maybe they'll say, well, then you have to help clean it up or depending on the age of the child, maybe, oh, you have to help replace it in some way or, you know, we have to see what you were doing that you played that broke it. Maybe we don't have to, we have to not do that anymore. You're playing with the ball in the house, whatever, those kinds of things. But if you have the other parent where the child is afraid they're going to get a really bad punishment from yelling to physical uh, punishment to horrible consequences that they're really not looking forward to, that child is much more likely to, in this case, literally sweep things under the rug. They will try to hide it from that scary parent who is going to punish them, sweep it under the rug, hide it in some way, lie about it, blame someone else if they know it's going to be seen that something happened, but they'll find a way or try to find a way out of it. And so now what we all have is that we've internalized a parent that we now deal with every day. So um, I see people all the time who will talk about how their parents are. Oh, my mom was this way. My dad was that way. And their parents can even be dead or not living with them or whatever it might be. But they still are now being that way with themselves. They carry that a little version of their parents within themselves. That is that more judging side from a Freudian um, uh, terminology or perspective, the superego, which is now telling them um, or, or reacting to them in that way, whether how judgmental or permissive or whatever it might be with them, they've internalized that. So someone who is very perfectionistic, who thinks they should never get things wrong, always get it right, making a mistake is unacceptable, they will likely hide things from themselves because they know once they see it, they're going to have to punish themselves or they will punish themselves so harshly for seeing the mistake. So what we find is that people who are perfectionists, it's not that they're going to be so good at everything. What they likely will do is they'll be very good at certain things and yes, do it at an incredibly high level and do it in a way that might be really special and get attention for that. But there will likely be parts of their lives that are really going bad, but they're not even willing to look at. So they're performing so well at work but their marriage is horrible and they don't want to even face it or they want to completely blame their partner for any problems. Or if their partner is unhappy, it's not because they're not giving time and attention to the relationship. Oh, the partner has unrealistic expectations and nothing would make them happy, um, which is kind of a perfectionistic type of mindset too, that they feel like they'll be stuck in that. So unfortunately, they're likely to avoid things. 
um, because of this punishment that is there. So this is where we can see that that punitive or being so hard on yourself and thinking that's how I'm going to get to a good place doesn't work is that when we do that, we are too hard on ourselves. We avoid actually facing mistakes, making mistakes, and then seeing what we're doing there. Now, how does someone become perfectionistic? That itself could be a whole segment or, or show. But if we see it in ourself, unfortunately, it's something that can be very pervasive and show up in lots of aspects of our lives. I can tell you some things now and logically they'll make sense, but it doesn't mean it will change the way it feels for you. Because unfortunately, our feelings work really well, but they also work really poorly. What do I mean by that? Our feelings can help guide our actions. For example, you walk into a room and you get scared. You might even feel that you're scared before you realize what you're scared of. And then you see there's something in there, a person that's scary or an animal in there, it's scary, or it's so dark, you can't see anything. And the feeling helps guide you away from that or to recognize you're not feeling okay. But the ways that feelings can really get us in trouble is that it always feels so real that we can't even sometimes with logic, we can try to talk to ourselves out of it, but it feels so real. So um, it's kind of like how anxiety is, where you can get anxious a million times about something. And you might even be able to tell yourself, oh, you know what? I can't believe I worried so much about this last time. I was stressing out. I was freaking out. I thought it was so real. I ran away or I did this. I did that. That was so silly. The next time that same thing happens, when you feel it, it feels so real. That's how the feeling works. That the way it seems is like, oh, no, no, I know I said that. I just said that a minute ago, but this time it feels different. What if this time it's the real thing? And that's how people can feel in the moment. It seems like, no, this is real. I know last time I said I overreacted, but no, this time it actually is happening because the thing we're afraid of happening, it usually is something that can happen. So it's a protective feeling, but in this case, it's overprotective or the alarm is too sensitive. So we're worried way more than we need to be. But each time the alarm goes off, we hear it. Just like when alarm goes off, you can't pretend like the sound isn't there. That's how those feelings work. So when people have this perfectionism, even though I can tell them and most people understand and will logically accept that you not only need to make mistakes, but of course, no human is perfect. Nothing we do is perfect. Um, an analogy I like is someone like if you watch basketball, Steph Curry is probably the best shooter of all time, but he misses more three-pointers than he makes in general. It's probably actually somebody he's close to 50%, let's say. In a really good game, he might be more than 50%. But overall, he's missing more than he's making, but he's the best. And so, of course, it depends on what we're doing, but we see that even if we're making mistakes or not getting it right, it doesn't mean we're not even quite good at that thing we're talking about. And on only that, as a human being, we are not supposed to be good at everything. We're going to be not good at most things or many things, and that's quite okay. So most people, even who are perfectionists, will get this in a logical level, can repeat everything I even said, and even my myself can have some perfectionistic tendencies, but can talk about it in this way. But the feeling when it's happening is so deep and intense that it doesn't seem okay. Oh, pe people are going to know that I made that mistake. Oh my God, then they, they panic. You might freak out about that. Or I did this wrong or I didn't get it right. They are beating themselves up internally. How can I do that? I'm so stupid. What's wrong with me? So that's the, the hard part about these things is that it's an emotional feeling. You can get that it's 
not good, just like self-esteem in general. Obviously, people get that it's not good to have a low sense of yourself and feel bad about it. But when you're in a situation and you feel low and you feel like lower than someone else or low in a situation, the feeling is so pervasive and strong and it feels real, that's what a feeling is, that you can't shake it with just talking about it and thinking about it, which is why changing something like perfectionism can be so difficult. So let's go to a commercial break. I may continue on this theme. We'll see um, what I'm thinking about it in a few minutes. Let's go to a commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So, so far I've been talking about perfectionism and I actually thought I was thinking is it about how to deal with perfectionism once we have it or we see it on ourselves or someone um, but I thought maybe we can look at it the other way when we're thinking of parents and parenting and how to be aware of how perfectionism might come about and making sure we don't give that uh, to our children so um, I was reminded of the Frederick Douglass quote of uh, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men of course it could be not just men just any person but um, unfortunately, once perfectionism has taken hold of someone or it's in someone, it's a lot harder to change that. Doesn't mean you can't. Definitely uh, you can. And maybe as I'm talking about it now, I want to maybe talk about that. But let's get back to the, the parenting first and what we can do or be aware of. So if we want to prevent something, we do have to have some notion or idea of how it gets caused to, to prevent it so we can feel that someone who is a perfectionist to begin with they're likely going to have a more anxious predisposition but that being uh, put aside for a moment as because that is going to be out of our control as far as how we respond to a child so again we can get feel like we're in this dichotomy should we um, oh is it anything goes and if our child does anything we say it's good no matter what it is um, you know, uh, a wrong answer is as good as a right one. No, we don't have to go that far. We definitely can promote doing well, um, performing well, encourage hard work. That's definitely not something um, against uh, the rules here or would go against um, what I'm talking about. What we want to be mindful of is not going to the other extreme of always getting it right or the way we deal with mistakes or getting it wrong both in our children and ourselves. So when it comes to ourselves, we are we acknowledging mistakes that we make? This is a big thing just in relationships in general, that we want to be someone who can acknowledge wrongdoing. If you're in any kind of relationship with someone, a parent, a romantic relationship, even in doing your best, you're going to get things wrong sometimes. You're going to say things your partner might not like. You're going to do things or forget to do things or not do things that your partner doesn't like or gets hurt by. And even regardless, it's not just about making some kind of mistakes that might be so tangible, but we would hope there's always a mindset of wanting to do better. How can I do better if I love my child or if I love my husband, wife, my partner? I would hope the mindset is I want to do better. So I'm sure I can grow. I'm sure I'm not doing it as good as even I can do it or as good as it's possible. So we want to give that type of encouragement to our kids that we do want them to do well, we want them to do better, but also when it comes to ourselves, even we can acknowledge doing things wrong. 
sometimes parents think to show my kids they're in good hands and you know because we want to feel good if we are realistic we might realize part of it is we just want to feel good about it. it's not just for our kids we can say that's the case but some of it's for us um, we don't want to say we did anything wrong and so it's a very common thing I hear I think most parents we have this sense that we have to be this way some cultures might have it even more I definitely see in the Iranian culture we have this strong sense that um, an authority is always right and so they have to always be right so as a parent you should never say you did something wrong because now you're no longer the authority if you acknowledge doing something wrong so we can actually see some type of perfectionism there in our cultural mindset about certain things so I've seen this where um, if you're a professor of something you have to know everything about the subject you can never say you don't know I think I shared this recently that when I was doing my first internship at USC um, at the student counseling center we saw a video that was supposed to promote cultural sensitivity and there were students from different countries expressing their experiences as international students and what things were like back in their country and what they were now shocked to experience in America and one of them was an Iranian student and he was saying he was shocked that one day one of his professors um, was asked a question in class and the professor said I don't know I have to look that up or look into that and I'll get back to you and this student was just shocked he could not believe that the professor would acknowledge not knowing something and he, he he I don't remember the exact wording but he said something literally like even in my country even if the professor doesn't know uh, he, and he probably said he, he he'll just give you an answer he'll say something so we unfortunately have this in our culture that if you are knowledgeable about something if you're the expert on something if you're the teacher professor and have that status in some setting you have to know everything and that's unrealistic and of course that shows it that you might think it's to preserve the system but really it's serving you also that are you teaching someone that you're willing to teach them the wrong thing because you're afraid technology you don't know something that really shows that it's not about the education and the teaching it's about you and how you feel and how you feel they're going to see you so unfortunately we have this in general but in our culture as Iranians we have to be aware of this that we have a tendency to think we never show weakness we never show we don't know we never show a mistake but if you act in this way with your children you're also modeling for them that this is the way that you never make mistake why would I make a mistake and of course then if they do make mistakes they're going to feel bad about it and they might even internalize the sense that never show that weakness or that you have made a mistake so first and foremost as a parent you want to be very mindful of that doesn't mean you have to go again to this other extreme where you're just constantly saying you did everything wrong and apologize every moment but hopefully you will acknowledge when you do something wrong which you will because you're human and also in the relationship with them acknowledge and apologize also it's something that I experience with clients all the time they're trying to deal with pains from their childhood and we can try to go through it alone which is often what we are ending up doing because we don't have the other option of dealing with it with the people that hurt us but the quickest way to resolve a past hurt or a current one that's recent even is for the person who hurt us to acknowledge that they did something wrong or that they see what they did was wrong that's the fastest way to healing it's not always available to us for multiple reasons from the person might not even be alive we don't have communication with them or what is commonly the case the person doesn't acknowledge it so we can't force them to and then we're forced with the more difficult and longer path of trying to heal a past wound 
by ourselves, which we can do, but it's always going to be harder. So I would hope you recognize that and see that if you acknowledge the things you did wrong in whatever relationship it is, it's likely to heal those wounds much more quickly than can be done any other way and actually can lead to the relationship being stronger after the fact. But with your kids, yes, hopefully you'll acknowledge that and if you did something wrong. But now in interacting with them, so as I was saying, it doesn't mean you don't promote doing good things and trying to work hard and do well, but you make it very clear that their lovability is not tied into their performance, which might seem obvious. I don't think anyone literally will say, if you don't get an A, I won't love you. Maybe sometimes it can be something like that. But that feeling can be given to the child that I love you when you do well, I don't love you when you do bad. Whereas you might acknowledge, okay, you didn't do well on this test or you made a mistake, but let's let's look at that. So there can be a curiosity. Let's try to understand it rather than harsh judgment or punishment or made to feel bad about it. Or even when they're playing, you can see sometimes parents get very caught up in, oh, no, you did this wrong, or you, did the, you, you didn't make this, or this happened. Okay, you're, they're playing with some toys and they fall over. So, oh, they fell over. Oh, okay, you can just respond in a way that shows it's okay, this thing happened. It can be even part of the playing, um, but let that be. And one more general type of concept that's related to this, and you can even hear it in some of what I was sharing so far, is something we call the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. Uh, obviously, there's a uh, the well-known book by Carol Dweck on this this topic. She was one of the originators of this, sort of promoting it in this way or, or conceptualizing it in this way. So in the fixed mindset, it's this notion that we all have some kind of innate abilities, capabilities, and that's it. You either got it or you don't. You're either good at math or you're not. You either can um, do this physical thing or you can't do it. It's very fixed. And then there's the growth mindset, which this type of mindset um, explains that we try things and we get better at them. If you're not good at something, through hard work, practice, you can get better at that thing and now you can do it. So if you don't do it well the first time, that's okay. It's something new. If you um, even don't do it well the first few times, that's totally okay. You're trying something new. If you keep trying, you'll get better at it. And so if we even look at how you respond to parents or respond to your kids and what they do, uh, a fixed mindset, you might tell a child, you're so smart, which of course sounds really nice. But in a growth mindset, you might say something like, wow, you worked so hard to get that question right. And it might seem like just the words. And of course, if you just say it as the words, but act everything else the same, it won't have the same impact. But when we say you're so smart, although that's obviously a compliment, who wouldn't want to be called smart? It sounds good. It can make it seem that that performance defined you as smart and your result there defined you as smart, which now puts the pressure that each time you are given a task, given a question, have to do something. It's either going to prove if you're smart or not, which can feel kind of scary. If I get it right, I'm smart. If I don't, I'm, I'm dumb or I'm not smart. And this is actually what they found in research. Not exactly we know what was going on in the kids' heads, but they would do some um, work with students, with kids. They would have them do something and either they would praise them with, you were so smart or you worked so hard. And then they would give them an opportunity to do either an easier puzzle or an equally hard puzzle or a harder puzzle based on 
uh, and then asked them for their response. And what they found was that students who were told you were so smart were likely to pick an easier puzzle to do or an equally hard puzzle, but not a harder puzzle because the pressure is if I get it wrong, I'm not smart. So I don't want to do something really hard or I'm afraid to do something hard because I can lose this status uh, from myself and also the way this person sees me as being smart. But when they told kids, wow, you worked so hard at that to get that puzzle right or to, to finish whatever the problem was. And now they said, what would you like to do next? A harder one or uh, an easy one. They want to do the harder one because the challenge is fun, which is genuinely the case if we don't feel such a pressure and such a high stakes feeling of getting things right, we are more engaged and have a good time when we get pushed to our limits. It's actually more fun for us. It's easier and we might think, okay, I always want to do the easier thing, but really we get bored if we're doing something easy. We get engaged and excited if we do something that's a little bit hard, that just, just can feel almost out of our reach or pushes us to that limit. That feels really good. So these students who get that response of you worked so hard, they want to work hard again. And they know that if they work hard enough, they'll, they'll figure it out and they'll get to that right answer. But if you're told this is who you are, you're either smart or you're not, well, then it's scary. It's like, well, yeah, give me the easiest thing you've got. And so we see this, that people who are perfectionists, of course, they have much more of the fixed mindset. I get it right. I'm smart, or at least I'm not dumb. I get it wrong. I'm unlovable. Who am I? I'm worthless. I don't have any value. I'm only valuable if I get it right. And so unfortunately, when you are a perfectionist, when the emphasis is so much on not getting it wrong, you're going to do things that are easier. You're going to do things that are safer. You're going to do things that you already know you can do, which means you're going to stay in a very narrow path of the things you know you'll do and do well and will be okay at. But that means you won't try new things as much. You won't push yourself out of your comfort zone. You won't try something that's more creative because when you're creative, almost by definition, you're doing something new, which means there isn't a precedent to know if it's going to be good or bad or it's going to go well. So it puts you in this very restricted box that you're really putting yourself in, as is often the case. We put ourselves in a prison. We have the key or the door is open, but we think we're stuck in it. And so if you have this perfectionistic tendency, you'll be very afraid to try new things, to put yourself out there, and to actually see what you can do. Imagine you're trying to lift a weight, but you never want to not be able to lift the weight. You're always going to find a low weight or a weight you know you've done. But if you really want to see how strong you are, you have to push yourself to do a weight that you might not be able to do. And sometimes you have to push yourself to where you can't do it. Okay, I can lift 20 pounds. All right, let me try 25. I can do 25. Let me do 30. Oh, 35. I barely did it. Let me try 40. Oh, barely did that. Uh, I couldn't do 45. And of course, if you keep doing that, you will get stronger. But if I never want to not do the weight, I'm just going to keep doing 20. Well, I know I can do 20, so I'm just going to keep doing 20. And that's fine. And 20 might be okay, it might be good, and you'll never get it wrong, but you'll never get stronger either. And so interestingly, when we push ourselves out of our comfort zone, we genuinely get stronger too. It might not be in this physical sense I'm talking about, but you 
build on skills. You can do new things. You can um, also show to yourself that you can do new things, which makes you stronger as well. So it's actually the same kind of principle that if I push myself to a higher weight, which means sometimes I won't be able to do it, I genuinely will get stronger over time. But with the perfectionistic mindset, it's very anti-growth because I want to keep doing the safe thing that I know I can do because it's not about doing good things or it's not about doing things because we enjoy them and getting engaged. It's all about avoiding mistakes because when I make the mistakes, I will be unlovable or I'm not good or I expose my inherent badness, which is what I'm so scared about. Speaking of mistakes, I'm a little bit late here on the commercial break. So let's go to the next commercial break and we'll be right back. back. So in the the first three segments, I was talking about perfectionism. And I'll segue from that topic, uh, going from what I was talking about at the end there about how perfectionism, unfortunately, will definitely take away from our tendency to try new things, to be creative, to explore, because all of those things involve doing something that's at least new for us it might even be new in general to the world or at least no one has really done it in a certain way because all those things involve a big risk to anyone but especially to perfectionists because you definitely could get it wrong you don't know even what the result is going to be you are just going based on a, a feeling or feeling some things coming together in your mind but you have to accept the possibility of getting it wrong and so if your whole goal is to never get it wrong, then your whole direction is going to be staying in a place that you know you'll get it right. But that's going to limit considerably what you end up doing, what you end up expressing. And so I wanted to talk about this notion of how we live our lives, that it can feel like either we're an actor reading a script that was written not by us, but handed to us somehow, or we're living an improv scene. So if you're familiar with that term, improv means improvisational. So if you're doing an improvised scene, there's no script. And if you've ever seen an improv performance, it can be quite exhilarating. Often the uh, several individuals who've performed together, but here they're unscripted, they might even ask a request from the audience and based on a word or a phrase or a small story, they'll create a whole uh, scene around that it might even be like 10, 20 minutes long based on something that was just said, just some starting word. And so what I mean by this, as far as scripts go, and there's even types of psychological theories that might use script as part of their descriptions of what we do. A script doesn't mean literally, obviously someone gave you the words to say, but that we have learned from society, from our culture, but then very much from our own experiences, uh, our parents and what we experience as children. And then as we've gotten older, what we think is expected of us to say. So I'm reading my script that I think everyone else wants me to say, or from what people have said, I'm saying those same kinds of things. And what people have told me they like and don't like that factors in. And then essentially unconsciously I might read that script and so of course we're affected by society even we can say things like gender roles right this is what a man should or shouldn't do this is what a woman should and shouldn't do 
Um, and of course that will affect the script. And then you yourself always see you as this kind of person or people tell you whether they consciously do or, or explicitly do or just from their interactions with you. So you should say these things or not say these things or show up in this way, not show up this way. So we might not realize how much we are following a certain script that also can be part of what we consider like a comfort zone. This is my comfort zone to act in this way. This is related to uh, a concept I've discussed before about being romantic with yourself, which I know sounds um, like an inappropriate thing to be talking on the radio, but I'm not talking about that. What I mean by being romantic with yourself is that just like in a romantic relationship where we can get bored because we assume and we tell ourselves and trick ourselves and your partner might be doing the same thing about you, that I completely know my partner, they can never surprise me, I can expect everything they're going to say and do, essentially saying we know their script fully by heart, we become bored. But when we genuinely realize the reality is that you can never fully know even yourself, so you can never fully know someone else, that they can always surprise you and there will be always more to learn about them and even about their past. But as people um, live and change and evolve, there's going to be more to learn about them, which is genuine, but can create some more anxiety of feeling like I don't know exactly what's going to happen, losing that sense of control. Um, we can actually keep the passion alive by recognizing there's always going to be some uncertainty. There's always, although I know you, I can't fully know you. And so I've realized that we do this to ourselves. So when I say being romantic with yourself, it means keeping the passion alive by allowing yourself to surprise yourself or to see what comes up for you, how you want to respond, what you want to do, rather than telling yourself, and it happens so quickly and automatically, you don't realize you're telling yourself, but telling yourself this is who you are and how you are. Oh, I'm just not that type of person to do that. Or oh, I never would like something like this. Well, let yourself experience it and see what happens. Let yourself try a different way of being or acting or responding than what you've always done and what you think everyone is expecting of you and what is comfortable for you. So in that way, being romantic with yourself in the sense of allowing the passion to be there of life and with your own relationship with yourself that you allow yourself to try something new, try to be something and be someone different. So in a similar way, we might read the same script. Oh yes, I'm the, I, I, my character never gets angry. So this is a script I read. Or my character um, never bothers anybody. Or my character always is in control. And so that's my script. But that's not a full person. That's kind of like a movie you see where you have a very one-dimensional character who always... Um, you know, is like the mean person or the nice person or the funny person or the silly person. And they're just that. That's not who we are as human beings. We can be all the different aspects of being human. We can be all of those things. And so if we're reading that script, we're going to be very restricted. The script restricts us. But if we're looking at it the other way of this improv way, if you see someone who's doing improv, and actually I just went to an improv show a few weeks ago, the, the group, actually, the reason we went was a Boos Boos, uh, Payam Banifaz P. Bani, if you see him on Instagram, also with Ruha Taslimi, who I've known since childhood, and they're in a group together with one other individual. I believe her first name is Kimia, but they were uh, part of two groups that performed that night. And if you see people who do improv, and the better you are at doing improv, or the better the performance goes, the more you're in the moment responding to what comes up for you based on what's going on around you. So this this interplay between 
what's happening in the scene, how your scene partners are acting and what they're saying and how they're being, and then what's coming up for you. Just letting that part come out, less restricted, less judging it as this is how it's supposed to be, but just responding in the moment. And so this relates to what I was just talking about um, before, but also when we talk about being genuine, and I've realized my own way of speaking about it at times, and I might still do it because I can feel this way, it's as if when we say there's this genuine you, it's like this static thing, that this is you and you always will act this way. But that's just another way of constricting ourselves. When we really mean, or what I really mean now, and I think a genuine, authentic version of yourself, even that version makes it seem like, oh yeah, this is me. There's the new version here, like it's a book, now read this book. But when we talk about this genuine, authentic self, what that means is that I'm going to respond each moment, not based on these scripts of what I think I'm supposed to do or what's comfortable or what I think everyone wants me to do or expects me to do, but respond in a genuine way of what I'm feeling. Someone says something and if I don't like it, I can tell them I don't like it. If I like it, I will tell them that. If I want to try something in a different way, I'll do it in that way whatever is happening at that moment I'm responding to rather than, oh yeah, now I'm I'm being my authentic self and my authentic self is angry or my authentic self is um, going to do this kind of a thing now or my authentic self is a painter now. And it could be that, that you paint, but it's not all that you are and you might even change from that down the line. It's not that you've now found the all that you are. To me, that authentic self is responding in the moment to the moment. This is how I feel, and this is how I'm going to respond. That's being genuine. And so it, it kind of hit me in this way of thinking of life that we can either live it as a actor in a scene where we're directed by someone, and the writer was someone else who gives us the script, and that someone else's all of our experiences, society, people around us, or we can live life as an improvisational actor. And to me, life is improv. Um, in the book, uh, The War of Art, um, the, the author, I'm blanking now on his name, he talks about, uh, Stephen Pressfield, I believe, he talks about how life is like art because life is like improv. If we're living in the moment and we're living our lives, it's always unplanned, or it should be. We should have conversations that we're allowing them to unfold. We should have interactions where we let things unfold. Every kind of experience, even sexual experiences people have. Working with couples, sometimes the sexual experience becomes this very scripted thing because it's staying comfortable. We're afraid of something being unpredictable, so we want to do it the same way every time because that's what we know. We know it quote-unquote works, and so we always want to do it in that way. And so we can turn all our experiences into these scripts or we can turn them into or keep them as these improv actions. And so I was just thinking how I, I would encourage, it was even starting with myself, but for everyone to think of this, that how much am I allowing myself to live life more as an improv scene rather than a scripted scene where the script is from someone else and what maybe people expect, but it takes away a lot of that genuineness, the excitement, the realness that we can have in our lives. And so what I want to do in the next segment is look at how this affects even how we do things. Because we tend to think, okay, if I want to be good at something, I have to follow certain principles, which is true. But what we tend to miss is we take ourselves out of it. So again, we go back to being that scripted character rather than 
the improv genuine version of ourselves. And so we often don't realize how we take that part out of the equation. So again, the theme here was living our lives in more of an improvisational way where we're an improv actor rather than a scripted actor. And in the next segment, I'll talk about how this might affect the ways we do things and recognizing how to genuinely be good at something. If we take ourselves out of it, we can't be good at it. And so I'll talk about what that means after this commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I was talking about living your life as an improv scene, as an improv actor rather than a scripted actor. And I said I was going to talk now about when we're trying to do certain tasks or do something, realizing that we can do it either as the scripted actor mindset or more of this improv scene. And so let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you want to be a singer or a writer. People will say, okay, well, let's look at the people who did it well. And what often will happen is then they think they have to do what they did and they'll, or they'll try to copy what they did. Okay, so this good singer sings this way. So I'm going to sing in that same way. Or this person writes in this way. Oh, a good writer, Charles Dickens and Tale of Two Cities. Sometimes people will say it's such a great, uh, one of the best starts to a book or the best opening paragraphs. And so, I don't know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and it goes on like that. And so you might read that and think, okay, well, I want to be a great writer too, so I'm going to write something like that. It was the coldest of times, it was the warmest of times, it was the this of times, and and now you think, well, I've, I've done the same thing. Isn't that good? Isn't that actually great? If I'm doing the same thing that someone else did, that was great. But what we're missing is what makes those things great was that the person who created that art created that work was putting themselves into it and so if you just copy what they did you aren't putting yourself you're trying to just do their thing and now claim it as yours or pretend like it's your thing it also reminds you of when people want to be good public speakers and i think I, you know you see this with things like ted talks and such an explosion of everyone trying to be a public speaker that you see a lot of people that it seems like they've definitely been scripted a way of being a good public speaker, for example. Oh, use your hands this way. Open hands versus closed hands. And so you can get the sense it's very robotic and mechanical that they're trying to do what good public speakers do rather than speaking themselves in a good way or expressing their ideas in a good way. And there's something to be said that when we're learning something new, we have to go through this process to a degree of first looking at those that do it well and likely imitating them to a degree. And it takes time before ourselves to come through. I've actually heard Powerholm say this. I forgot who's my brother Powerholm used to say. Talk about stand-up comedians and that I forgot who was saying it, but that they realized they were just for a long time at the beginning, basically doing impressions of other comedians, even without realizing it, until they found their own voice. It took some time. I can even say this as a therapist, that this is something um, I experienced, and I've talked to many colleagues who've experienced something similar, that when you're first being a therapist, you don't know how to do it. You kind of have some ideas, and you've been studying it for a little while. But when you're first acting as a therapist, even I said acting there, but when you're first being a therapist, you are really very mechanical and thinking, okay, 
I'm supposed to reflect here? Or, okay, did I empathize here? Or what am I supposed to ask here? That's the right thing to do. Or you maybe have seen a supervisor or seen videos. It's a lot harder compared to like, let's say singing, where you can see hours of so many people singing. You don't have that much to draw from of seeing therapists in action, but there's some things out there. And so you likely are just going to be acting like those therapists you've seen and thinking that's the right thing to do. And that's how I was. And it took some time to slowly find my own voice and going back to that sense of that authentic self. Of course, you have um, the things you've learned, the different techniques, different theories, conceptualizations as a psychologist that you'll bring into every session you have. But the most important thing that you're going to bring to every session that you have is yourself, that you are in the conversation expressing um, your humanness with that individual. I'm actually trying to think of a uh, quote by Carl Jung, which is like this, about how when you're being with your clients, you have to learn the techniques, but essentially at the end, be a human. Um, because at, if you're going to help someone, you need to be human and to human with them. That's really the only way. So know all the theories, master all the techniques, but as you touch a human soul, be just another human soul. And talk about the imitation not being as good as the real thing. I'm glad I found the quote. Know all the theories, master all the techniques, but as you touch a human soul, be just another human soul. And I love that quote because I've seen that myself as a therapist. You learn all these techniques, but the best moments, the most meaningful moments I've had with clients and you regularly will even have with clients are not the ones where I can tell you exactly why I said or did the thing I did. It wasn't like, oh, this is, you know, in chapter three of this book, it said, say something like this now. It's when I've really let myself express something that is being brought up for me with the client and sharing it with them. And sometimes you'll get it wrong, of course, going back to perfectionism doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. You get it wrong sometimes, but taking those risks allows you to then have these types of very special moments. And so this goes back to this notion of taking risks and perfectionism that in order to really show yourself in the best way, you have to be willing to take those risks of getting it wrong. I don't know, but this is how I'm feeling. And sometimes with the client, a analogy or an image will pop into my head based on what they're sh what they're sharing and and what's coming up and at times i'll just share that with them that this is a, you know for example oh i have this image of you in a dark room with your chair pointing to the wall and of course sometimes it can be very wrong but sometimes it resonates very deeply we say yeah that's exactly how i felt and i can't tell you how i came up with that and it's not something i came up with consciously it's something that's coming up within me and now I share that with the client. So how I learned to be a better therapist over time was to learn the things I learned, but then to unlearn them or to learn more, to listen to my voice and what it had to say. And that made me the best therapist or will help me become better the more I can trust that voice. And so the same is true really in all of our interactions, especially artistic 
creative ones, but really when we're even interacting with a loved one, the more it's coming from our genuine sense of self, meaning we let what is there respond or, or come out and respond in that way, we're going to have better interactions with them. But especially in the arts, this is what we, we see. So if you want to create something and you just think, well, how is it supposed to look? How does it sound? What do other people do? You won't ever do the best that you can because you're leaving out the most important part of your art, which is you. When people do good art, it's not because they did the techniques quite right or perfectly. It's because they were able to put themselves in it, their feelings into it, which has to come from within and can't be just taught. That's why a good public speaker isn't one who moves their hands every two to three seconds and projects their voice in a certain way. It's the person who conveys how they're feeling to the audience as clearly and directly as possible. Now, again, as I was saying, we first have to learn from others and you do have to learn the techniques. If you want to be a very good guitar player and express yourself through the guitar, you first have to learn how to play the guitar. What sounds does it make? When I do this, what does it do? Over time, essentially what happens, you see the great guitarists and musicians of different kinds with different instruments, they become one with their instrument. So now what happens is like the instrument is not something they're playing, but they play through it. So the feelings come through. I, I'm feeling this way and now I play it through the instrument. But they have to get to a certain level of proficiency to be able to do that. You can't never have played guitar and then you feel your emotions and you want to share them and then share them through the guitar. It just won't happen. So you have to first learn the techniques, going back to that Jung quote, you learn those techniques, you learn the basics, you learn what people do, and then you learn how do I put myself in this. And often what we see is that when over time techniques change, it's because people add their own twists, they learn what's there, and then they add new ways of doing things. So we even see this when people, let's say, blend um, a genre of music with another one. They maybe are combining things or they're putting a little twist on something. They're learning what's there and now they're adding themselves in it which is adding their own contribution but they did have to learn the basics first so i say this also because at times we want to skip that part sometimes we stay stuck in that part we don't we only do the basics we never want to do our own thing but sometimes we can um, go the other way we think we never have to learn the basics. i just want to do something but we usually have to learn what's there to then learn what we can add to it and i was recently um, had someone share a story with me about um, a jazz pianist named Keith Jarrett. And I actually haven't listened to his work yet, but I definitely want to very soon after hearing this story. And that he is apparently a very famous jazz pianist and incredible performances. And they went to their concert and they said that they performed the first part and they came out to do the second part and they just kind of looked at the guitar, uh, the piano, and they seemed like they just didn't know what to do or they felt something was off and they started playing the back of the piano so if you know like a grand piano it's open the part that's open those the strings not the the, the ivories and the the ebony the notes or the keys they were playing the back of it and making some weird sounds and you know he said that people were looking around at each other like what is going on here but over time after playing that and then he started playing part of it on the piano and it just became this amazing thing and 
Now you might say, and, and it was incredible, you said that it was like a five minute standing ovation and it was just this incredible moment, but really it was just the person was being so, Keith Jarrett was being so in the moment that he expressed this thing that he probably, I'm sure, couldn't have predicted himself or he hadn't planned it himself, but it became something because he allowed it to become something. He didn't get in the way of it. It came up. He didn't think, well, everyone is expecting me to play a 30-minute a piece or 30-minute performance. I have to do it the way they I've always done it or they expect that from me. He didn't read the script that he thought others had given to him. He created this incredible performance because he just expressed what he was feeling, what felt right to him in that moment, and through that conveyed that to the audience and they felt something too. That's what we do with art. It's a lot of things. But one of the things is I put my feelings into something and it makes you feel something. Now, often it's the same kind of thing, but there's always going to be room for interpretation, which can allow you to have your experience. So now someone could have watched him in the audience say, wow, you know, he played the back of the piano for six minutes. Then he did one hand here, then he did that. I'm going to go do that thing. And then everyone's in the crowd's going to go wild. But if you do that as a script, because you think that's the way to do a good performance, it's not going to have the same impact because it wasn't that he played the notes in a certain way or that he hit things in this way. It was that that's what felt so genuine to him that the audience felt that too. And then I heard that he went and spoke to um, students at, at USC, um, second mention of USC as someone who went to UCLA, got to be careful, but he went to USC and the music students said, you know, we've been playing music. And I think he said in this way, like old white guys for a long time, I've played it too, the classical music playing their, their music. But if we're only going to play their songs, or if you think you're only going to play what they're playing, where is the new music going to come from? And, and so that's something to think about. Where does new music come from? Of course, people have to not just play the songs that are classics that everyone already knows and loves. You have to take risks and try something new that might not work, might be really bad, or maybe this time it's bad, but it helps you get to something else that is good. But you have to take those risks and try something that is your song. So you can't just play covers. Covers are when a band plays another person's songs that can be good and you can even put your own twist on that but if you're just playing other people's songs the way they play them we'll never have anything new and if we want to keep advancing we have to do new things which means we have to make mistakes but very importantly to even get there first we have to express what's coming out from within us and to give it that space so if you want to be good at something, whatever that thing is, especially if it's something that has a creative aspect to it, the first thing is, yes, you have to learn the techniques. You maybe even learn the history, learn what people do, see what the greats are doing, not because you're going to mimic them and copy them. Okay. If that's how they perform, I'm going to perform the same way, but really it's you're learning the value of how they perform, which is expressing themselves through the medium, whatever it might be. And you doing it has to be something different because you are not them. What makes good art good is that the person is expressing themselves. They're not expressing other people. They're trying to be other people. It can be very derivative or you might even sound nice. Someone plays a nice song that someone else wrote. It can sound good, but it won't hit you the deepest the same way as someone who expresses themselves very clearly in the work that they're doing. And that's, again, the scary part. If I play someone else's song that I know is famous, 
and people love, well, I know people are going to like it at least. But if I want to do something great and perform my own thing, that's a lot scarier because I don't know how people are going to respond. It could go well, it could not. But it's the only way I can do something really great is if I allow myself to be in whatever it is that I'm doing. So again, we can play the script, we can play other people's songs, or we can play our own songs, which means that we have to try, risk getting it wrong, risk not even doing something good, but that's the only way we can actually share our gift with someone. So if we want to be good at something, we have to risk not being good at it, being bad at it and kind of getting it wrong. But the only way we create something genuine is if we go to that place that allows us to be that improv actor rather than just reading the script. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first few segments, I was talking about perfectionism and then tied that into um, living a life that is more of an improv scene than a scripted scene that we're writing our own script as it happens rather than reading a preordained script that comes from others. And so I did allude to this um, last part that I want to talk about today when I was talking about relationships and just living our life in general. But in the last segment, I wanted to talk more in depth about this idea of living life in our relationships as an improv scene rather than a script. And so as I say all of these things, I recognize that, of course, there's things we've internalized that might not even all be bad of just ways of being and things that we will will take in. So it's impossible to have like no script that, uh, you know, everything you think of and do is purely in some way just coming from this other place. We're embedded in a life and culture and family that is going to impact us. But it's trying to recognize where is it coming from, what I'm doing, and as much as possible, see if we can unlearn or at least momentarily not go to those places that are so coming from somewhere else and respond from what we feel coming within ourselves. And as I said, now looking in the cons, uh, when we're looking at relationships related to how we relate to one another, and specifically, let's, let's talk about romantic relationships. So when we're getting close to someone, of course, we have these ideas of what we're even people meet, okay, well, well, you go on a first date, or you're supposed to talk in a certain way, not talk this much, or um, have to do it this way, or don't, that's too soon, that's too slow, you shouldn't do this yet, or we shouldn't talk about this yet. We have a lot of these rules that we um, often are unspoken, we've learned them from different people, and of course, different cultures, different families will have different ways of conveying these rules and have different rules, but there's so much that goes on that we think we have to do things a certain way. And so it's not to say we don't want to be mindful of how we do things that, yes, there could be some wisdom in, let's say, taking it at a certain pace, or as we understand ourselves, we can say, okay, I jump in too quick, or I do things too slow, or I'm too worried about opening up, I'm afraid of getting hurt, I choose the wrong relationships. All those things are important to to think about and look at. But now I'm thinking of when you've connected with someone, and let's say you've established some type of a connection with someone in a relationship and a commitment that you're now together. And so even if we look at why commitment can have value, because we might think, well, what's the point? And you know, I know there's you know, marriage or not marriage, 
even putting a label you know this is a big thing why do you want to put a label on what we're what we're doing what it is so yes of course sometimes we want a label because we want some uh, assurance of what's going on and that assurance can be both yes that you're not going to stray but of course when we look at a relationship even if people get married it can still end there's no guarantee but we're talking about and what i think is important and relates even to this theme of things like perfectionism is that when we make a commitment to someone we're saying that yes of course barring the extremes or if things get really bad uh, this relationship could end but that there is some space for us to get things wrong make mistakes not have things go well and we're going to keep going it doesn't just end so it's saying basically that when that's why we have in the wedding vows you know in sickness and in health rich or poor all those things we're basically saying yes life will throw things at us but then within us there will be some things that we go through or within our relationship and we're going to stay together through those things everyone who said those vows especially in recent history knows that they can get divorced and we know that maybe 50% or a large percentage of people still do get divorced so we say till death do us part knowing that it doesn't literally mean there's no way out of this other than death but that we're going to really make a commitment to make things work that I'm not just going to leave as soon as things get a little bit hard or you make a mistake or we have some rough days so that's where a commitment actually gives us that security that we don't have to be perfect it doesn't mean what some people do which is the well you married me now i can do whatever i want that's hopefully not where we go to but the sense that there's some security and stability that we've made because of this commitment that we've made to each other we're gonna really try to make this thing work we're not just giving up and so within that one would hope if we have that type of a commitment which gives us some of that security that when we interact with each other we can allow ourselves to be more genuine with our partner now of course that sounds very easy and no one's going to say don't be genuine or to lie or to be something different than that but it actually isn't very easy it doesn't come so natural to us which could sound strange because we're basically saying uh, don't just be yourself fully add a filter to it and adding removing the filter seems like it's unnatural to us when really it should be just being ourselves should be natural but that's how it can feel is that it's not as safe to just be ourselves and so how we interact with each other going back to my concept of the authentic self is that what if we let ourselves respond to each other with whatever we felt rather than thinking i have to always do it a certain way or my partner expects me to now say certain things and I can't say other things and we get stuck in a type of script together so I was talking about living a scripted life versus living an improvised life in ourselves but what we find is that people create a very scripted relationship together or now they have a, a script and they're both in the same movie but it becomes very restricted rather than being a genuine dynamic type of a interaction and relationship one way that this even shows up and it's something i joke with couples about is that sometimes when they fight about things most couples have certain scripts that they seem to read when they have their fights which show that it's one coming from things in their past and two as much as they might not like the the argument there's something comfortable about this type of fight that they've gotten used to so you'll see couples and they really don't skip a beat 
This person says this, they say this. Yeah, the words might not be identical, but there's such a similar theme in what both of them are doing that it does almost feel like a script. And I've seen couples who've had the same type of fight in front of me several times and you can almost predict what they're going to say next. Okay, you do this, you get angry, I respond in this way, you respond in that way, and then it ends in this way, and then even we reconcile it in this way, and it becomes like a script. And of course, we're a little bit more comfortable when we know or we think we know how things are going to go, but we're not actually having a genuine conversation, and that's why we stay stuck. If I just keep saying the same things and you keep saying the same things, well, of course, we're going to end up with the same result, which last time wasn't good. Why should we expect this time will be different? So again, we're choosing the comfort of security, of knowing exactly what's going to happen in this conversation over letting something new happen because that might scare us. We're afraid of what could happen if we let anything happen. As I mentioned before, the same thing happens in the sexual relationship, in the sexual realm. When you ask people to talk about fantasies, they sometimes think, well, the reason why fantasies are so exciting is because anything can happen in my fantasy. And that's why I like it more. And this concept was expressed very well by Stephen Mitchell in Can Love Last, um, where people think their fantasies are so exciting because of this unpredictability or this that anything can happen. But what he was arguing was that what actually we see is that a real genuine um, interaction with someone is much more unpredictable because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Whereas in our fantasy, as wild as we might think things look, we're controlling the whole thing. You're controlling every aspect of what you do, what other people do, whoever is in that fantasy, whatever is going on, you have total control. So as much as you think, wow, it's so wild and crazy, no, it's actually completely under your control and totally predictable what's going to happen. Whereas if you genuinely interact with your partner in a way where you allow things to unfold, you don't follow a script, that's likely going to make you much more anxious. That's a lot more crazy and wild because you don't know what's going to happen, what you might do, what you might feel, and what they might do and feel in response and then back and forth in a feedback that can create something quite beautiful and genuine, but it's scarier because it won't be scripted. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. So living a unscripted relationship can feel a little bit scarier because even if we say it's unscripted, it feels out of control. Whereas if it's scripted, I know what's going to happen and I know how it's going to end. And although maybe it's not the best that it can be, at least that part of it gives me comfort and I'd rather live with that. But this is where we want to challenge ourselves to have a relationship where we actually live it more unscripted allow space it doesn't mean you don't have routines i'm not saying every day wake up and you know uh, you just go um, instead of having coffee you go have gatorade and instead of sleeping in this room you go sleep in the garage and you know you have to do everything just different every single day you can have routines you can have things you do so i don't want to make it seem black and white but allowing for space and even asking yourself is there space for us both to be different do different things have different types of interactions to look at our life look at our relationship and how much of it is totally scripted and how much of it do we actually allow for us each to be independently different but also in our interactions with each other have space for nuance for newness for something new to happen and so when we do this it is going to be a bit more anxiety provoking because we can't predict and know exactly what we're going to say and our partner is going to say and as i was saying before this is what we tend to do 
we trade the passion that comes with not knowing for the comfort and stability of total predictability, right? I know exactly what's going to happen, so I have nothing to be afraid of. Of course, it doesn't mean things will always end well, but it gives us that um, mirage or that image that it will be. So if we can actually let go of that, we can keep the passion alive longer. So can love last? Stephen Mitchell says yes, but we have to allow for this um, ability that we can see our partner as a person I don't fully know yet. So they're not fully scripted, or we can't say that character has been completely typecast as this one type of one-dimensional person, he or she, and they are someone that I can't fully know. And so I have to see what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do in the next scene. I have some ideas because I know them and I've experienced them and encountered them and interacted with them, but I can't say I know for sure. And I'm going to give them that space. And same with me. I don't even know. We'd like to think, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to do and what I'm going to feel tomorrow or in five years, but we won't know. And so if we allow for this, the way I think of it is that, yes, it's unscripted, feels a little bit more scary, but the happiest ending we can have is one where we don't know how it's going to end when we start. The best relationship we can create, the most intimacy, the most closeness we can have is when we genuinely interact with each other in an authentic way, which means that it's not scripted and it's not predicted, predicted in advance. So you can try to have a happily ever after that you create in your mind already before it starts and put it at the end and now try to live to that. But that doesn't quite work. It's kind of trying to like force ourselves to fit something, fit some. It's almost like you're, uh, if you've ever written a paper and then it gets deleted, you're on, you know, on your computer and you try to write it again. And you're trying to make it fit exactly how you wrote it before. So it looks and ends the same way. It doesn't work. And that's kind of what we're doing with our relationships. We're trying to retype this image that we made in our mind. Now make it live out. It doesn't quite work. It's going to feel very forced and feel restricted. But if we allow for the space to say, you know what, I don't know exactly how it's going to end. And that's a bit exciting too. But I'm going to allow for it to unfold and see what happens in this relationship when we both genuinely interact, be ourselves, express things. Yes, it doesn't mean everything goes smoothly. And it doesn't mean that there won't be need and space to repair and talk to work through things, but that we can't predict this ending And let's write this story together as an improvisation, as it unfolds, as it happens, without knowing how it's going to be any given day, and also without being able to know how it's going to end. But I can assure you, if you approach it in this way, how you'll feel during and when you're getting to this end, and I don't mean even like the end means actual end of either of your life or the relationship, but as you're getting to these new moments, they'll be much more intimate and closer if you allow them to happen and to give that space for both individuals to be authentic rather than if you think we're going to have two scripted characters who follow this careful plan and follow this careful script to a T. So as I'm ending the show, I hope we can think of ourselves as an improvisational actor in our lives, meaning that we let ourselves respond to what's happening, realize and try to recognize the scripts that we've internalized and how they limit us, that the scripts constrict us, and to be our authentic selves as often as we can in our lives. And last but not least, to leave room for mistakes, because that's part of 
anything we're doing, part of being human and part of what we have to be ready for. Again, another mistake. I have to wrap up the show because I'm going over time. Here we go. Uh, thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.